The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, we'll be discussing what Iran gains from the conflict in Israel, hearing from the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, on anti-Semitism, Yulez, and the upcoming battle for City Hall. And I'll be speaking to Sean Simon, the former Labour MP, about what he's learned from going blind. First up, Paul Wood writes for the magazine this week about the role that Iran played in the Hamas attack on Israel over the weekend. He says it is unlikely that the terrorist group acted alone, and he joins me now to discuss alongside Uzi Arad, former national security advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Paul, could you start by taking our listeners through some of the most recent developments in the conflict? Can you give us a sense of the scale of it as we speak, what's happening now and where things might likely be heading by the weekend? Israel has a playbook for this. It's done this many times before. There's an incident. Israel, first of all, bombs the obvious targets. And then there is a ground operation. But some very important things have changed. Usually, Israeli generals are very conscious that there is the military clock and there is also the political clock running. And they have a limited time before international outrage pushes the US to call a halt to their operations. And they're very conscious of that clock. But now, of course, due to the extremity of the events, the atrocities, uh, the massacre, mass murder in many places in Israel, Israel is not going to be stopped, even if the US were to tell it. And of course, it has international backing to go far, far further in Gaza than it has ever gone before. We have a very distinguished guest, of course, Professor Arad, and I would be very interested to know his view on a number of things um, which are question marks for me. First of all, what is the US saying privately, does he think? I spoke to a contact in Washington who knows senior intelligence people who said, actually, on the National Security Council and the White House and other places, um, a body that Professor Arad will have dealt with directly in his former life as Israel's National Security Advisor. But on that body, they are quite worried that Israel will go too far. We're already seeing talk of a complete blockade of Gaza, the kind of thing that the UN has in the past called a breach of international law. Again, Professor Arad always very keen on law, both in Israel and internationally. So is Israel not going to listen? Is Israel going to waste all the sympathy that it's, it's accrued through these terrible events of the weekend? How does this play out? I'm sorry to throw it straight to our distinguished guest. No, of course, no. Uh, Professor, Professor Arad, if you would like if you would like to answer Paul's, Paul's question, that would be wonderful. Well, I do not want to predict what exactly the fashion and the scope of Israeli military activities will entail. But the purpose of what is being considered, of course, is one in which we are in agreement, I think, even with the United States and other allies. And that is that the very existence of a terrorist organization of the type of Hamas, which is practicing methods which are resemble the one of ISIS, in which it is, uh, these are terrorist organizations with stop a short of nothing, including the savage butchering of civilians, babies, women, and doing that with wanton uh, disrespect for anything, that this kind of organization uh, situated uh, at our immediate vicinity is simply intolerable. So the purpose of what should be done is simply to eradicate that organization, its entire infrastructure and leadership, and to render Gaza free of the presence of such completely impossible terrorist organizations. It is it is not acceptable. One cannot accept that condition. So we will have to do all that is required actually to degrade and ultimately destroy that organization 
uh, its capabilities, its presence, its leadership, its being. That is the purpose. Now, how exactly this will be exacted uh, depends because all kinds of considerations have to be taken into account. One is that we still face also a northern front where we have Hezbollah, which in some ways is coordinated uh, with the Hamas and is already shooting at Israeli territory from Lebanon. And we have just had to take action to deter any such uh, escalation coming from the north. So this kind of decision, how, what to do, which front to give priority to, should we act simultaneously? Should we even preempt a, a, a Hezbollah-originated attack on us? All these are things that we have to consider very seriously. They are strategic considerations. The other one that you refer to is going too far. Yes, we realize that there are some legal limits that should be considered because these are norms that Israel, like all like-minded nations, take into account that law. So the need to avoid collateral damage or to act against civilian populations within Gaza, which are not connected to the Hamas or to its being there, will have to be factored into our capabilities and our actions. So we will act within the law, but you know our mode should be not unlike the one, for example, that the United States did employ when it acted, say, in Afghanistan or elsewhere. And that would have to be taken into account, but not to the point which actually gives the Hamas an advantage because they would use their own population as kind of, uh, of, uh, of hostages um, uh, and, and use them in their defense. That we cannot allow them to do. But the methods that could be employed need not necessarily need an occupation of Gaza or a, a grand operation. All we need to do is to make these kind of possible ground operations to be either more surgical or to reduce the, the risk to our ground troops when they enter Gaza. And this is affected by making sure that we are not uh, going through urban areas, but we have prepared uh, these uh, staging grounds in a way that would limit casualties to our own forces. So all these considerations will be balanced. Clearly, we would employ as much as we can our Air Force capabilities. Uh, we will employ other capabilities which do not necessarily need ground activities on a large scale, nor the occupation of Gaza. So that can be expected. But again, the objective remains the same. And the American president has uh, specified that Hamas cannot be accepted as a being, as a terrorist organization of un in incredible barbarism in its methods. And, and those methods have been practiced not only in Israel. That same organization or similar tactics have been employed in France and elsewhere. And the commitment is to do with this organization once and for all. Uh, what evidence is there to suggest that, that, that Iran are are involved, or how directly are they involved in the planning of the attacks we saw over the weekend? And is it possible that we will see uh, in, in coming weeks, perhaps, Israel and Iran in direct conflict with one another? Both of the United States has uh, looked into its own intelligence, as should we, uh, to find what exactly we know, and in concrete fashion, uh, about the extent to which Iran is implicated or involved in these activities. That is still to be done, and I am not privy to that kind of intelligence. It stands to reason that there has been Iranian inspiration, it stands to reason that there's been some coordination. At the same time, Iran, while promoting these kind of activities, is careful not to demonstrate that it was directly and intimately involved in them. So we have to see and wait. But it is true that, again, look into the statement made by the American president. He said that no party, and that included Iran, should seek to benefit 
from Israel's moment of distress. And any party, be it Iran or Syria or any other one, uh, should not make the mistake. And I think that the president simply used a very brief word. He said, don't. Don't test us. Don't provoke us into that. And I think that may have some effect. But can we be sure? Not necessarily. Can we be sure that things would go out of hand and it would escalate into a multi-front confrontation? We cannot be sure that it won't. Hmm. But I hope that this will not be the case. And anyway, anyone who was involved in this atrocity will pay the price. I wonder, if, Professor, if you, President Biden's words as a warning that the US might actually intervene itself, might bomb Damascus, might bomb Iran. Somebody in Jerusalem claimed to have heard from a source in the US that privately those warnings were being made. Do you think that's credible? Well, I, I certainly, I assume that no one wants to get to that point and that there is much effort done to deter and by threatening that should that thing happen, the United States too might uh, take action. And again, as the president had said, because that kind of Iranian involvement presents not only a threat to Israel or even to the Middle East, the president had said it that this is a threat to security and to global security. And in that context, we may see things uh, we may see things getting to that level. We certainly have to take that into account. And I think that the threat is credible to the point that if the United States is ignored and if Iran takes uh, the, the steps that have been warned against, uh, then it may come in which the United States would have to, uh, to show its own credibility. And I think it will. I was going to say, that's certainly one way in which things could spin out of control very, very quickly. There's no evidence yet. U.S. intelligence agencies are looking for evidence that Iran planned this. But there's supposition, and my piece quotes Joel Rayburn, who was in charge of Iran policy on the National Security Council, saying, Hamas is a client of the Quds Force, which runs Iran's foreign alliances. And the Quds Force does not allow its clients much latitude. Um, it would certainly uh, plan the major initiative down to the timing, down to the execution. And so in his view, this was done by Iran as a means of tying up Israel, both in the north with Hezbollah and in the south with Hamas, and by extension, tying up the United States. And he felt that was very dangerous because if Hamas is to be eliminated, that would leave Hezbollah exposed. Israel could turn its attention there. And that is Iran's deterrence force. It doesn't have a nuclear weapon. It relies on Hezbollah and its missiles for deterrent. And therefore, in his view, and he may be right, we should expect the northern front to open up if things look very, very bad for Hamas. Now, as part of a story career, the, the professor has sat across the table from, from Iranian negotiators. In 25 years in Mossad, he's, he's probably met a lot of Israel's enemies. I'd be interested to know from him whether he thinks there's already a back channel with Hamas, maybe through Qatar to talk about hostages, if there'll be a back channel while this operation goes on, and what are the prospects for ever talking to Hamas after this, which I think may be the only way to make peace. You can you can kill a lot of Hamas people, and he mentioned the U.S. and British experience in Afghanistan. U.S. and British experience in Afghanistan was that you can kill as many people as you want. There's always somebody else to step forward into their shoes. There'll always be somebody whose husband, brother, son was killed who want to take up arms. You cannot kill your way out of a problem like this. In the end, you have to negotiate. Well, you know, uh, there are precedents for many, many other things. In the first place, I don't think that the American approach to Al-Qaeda, for example, which uh, was involved in September 11, uh, did involve then uh, negotiations with Al-Qaeda under the notion that you've got to talk to the enemy. But with a certain total enemies who do things like September 11, the United States went after after the leader of Al-Qaeda and other, other leaders of Al-Qaeda, uh, never seeking actually to find some middle ground and negotiate with them. The same with ISIS. ISIS was such a such a force that what what various nations have done is simply to fight it out and not to negotiate with ISIS because these are organizations which are terrorists and they do not want to negotiate. They say there is nothing, they declare their opposition to negotiation. They want 
to affect destruction, control, and they want to win in their own war, but they are not there to negotiate. So this is not a party. It is not representative, for example, of the Palestinian mood or Palestinian parties. As you know, within the, the, the Palestinian world, there are many, many who seek an accommodation, who seek actually a resolution of our conflict. It is them whom we have to talk to because essentially, in the first place, they limit their own use of terrorism. They are not using terrorism at all. And secondly, they are open to negotiations. This is not the case with Nazi-like total terrorist organizations of the kind that uh, Hamas is. And yes, you can fight them until essentially they vanish. This had been accomplished with all kinds of extreme terrorist organizations in the past that were active and are no longer there. So which is the case? I think in this case, their actions of the Hamas has demonstrated uh, what is the character of that organization. And uh, they do not represent the Palestinian interest. They represent themselves. Uh, Paul, there's a question which your piece addresses, which is the question of the security failure that allowed these atrocities to happen in the first place, especially considering what a sophisticated intelligence and security system Israel famously has. Do you think that in the long term, Prime Minister Netanyahu's authority is going to be severely tested by the Hamas attacks? Will, will do you think, Israelis see this as his failure to keep them safe? Or perhaps do you think he might benefit from a sense of national unity around this horrific tragedy? Yeah, you know, but this is superficial. At this moment in which we are into a war, which is a national war, and in which all Israelis are united, is not the moment to try and draw lessons and remove the leadership in the midst of, of, of the fighting. But I think that Netanyahu's own leadership and standing in Israel has been harmed, and he's held responsible for the flaws in our policy and in his own policy, and he's accountable for that. And uh, let there have no mistake about it, no matter what, I think that his uh, staying as uh, a leader will be will be tested very much by the Israeli people after this after this war is over, no matter how it ends. The flaws, however, have not been confined only to the prime minister. It is not only a policy failure that we have had a terrible, which is the product of his own leadership. Uh, and his own policies, his own neglect, and many, many things that for which he should be held accountable. But the flaws had also been by the systems, by our intelligence community, by our military, and also lessons would be have to be drawn there. All this self-examination will be conducted after the war is over. For the time being, we are moving with the leadership we have, we just formed uh, a war cabinet in which we have two of our former chief of staffs managing the war with Netanyahu, side by side with Netanyahu. I hope that this kind of uh, unity of command uh, has strengthened our authority. But after, you know, after the war, again, we would have uh, many, many changes. Uh, some changes in terms of who is responsible for this, and that would be, there would be consequences to that. But at the same time, we have also to examine the systemic uh, mistakes that have been committed, professional mistakes that were committed, negligence, uh, wrong assumptions. In fact, an entire doctrine upon which we relied turned out to be a flawed doctrine. And in all likelihood, there would be also doctrinal changes in our military, in our intelligence services, and in our leadership. It's a, it's a systemic thing, not confined only to our prime minister. But needless to say, his responsibility in terms of leadership and policy is overwhelming. Yeah, I was going to say, I spoke in the piece to Danny Yatomo, former head of Mossad, maybe a, a colleague of the professors. I don't know if they overlapped. Um, and he says, yes. uh, 
a bit like Professor Arad, um, this is a time for national unity. We'll have the public inquiry later. But I imagine that inquiry is going to ask some very difficult questions of Prime Minister Netanyahu. And Danny Tom's opinion was that Mr. Netanyahu was responsible in two ways. Firstly, in his opinion, there were very clear warnings that this attack was about to take place. The army apparently had seen Hamas massing near the border fence. They'd even been on open source. An exercise carried out by Hamas to, to storm a mock settlement they built in Gaza. And in Mr. Yatom's view, these warnings were ignored by the top brass of the intelligence and by the politicians because they had a, an analytical assumption that Hamas wanted quiet in order to get money from Qatar uh, and other reasons. And therefore, they completely misread the intentions of Hamas. So that was the first reason he held Mr. Netanyahu responsible. In a wider sense, he thought that the Netanyahu government had been cynically building up Hamas as a counterweight to Fatah and the PLO in order that there would be no negotiations for peace, that settlement of the West Bank could continue to permanently frustrate the two-state solution. And if that's true, it's, it's uh, a Machiavellian and cynical strategy that horribly backfired. Um, and of course, it then leads to the wider question. Um, and this, when you talk to Palestinians, right from Hamas representatives to ordinary Palestinians, they will always point to their frustration at not having a state on their what they would call their ancestral homeland and feel that they've been pushed into a corner. In, in Auden's phrase, those to whom evil is done do evil is in return. These are the arguments that we hear from the Palestinian side. They're not my arguments, but I'd be interested in, in Professor Arad's reaction to the idea that by frustrating any hope of a negotiated solution, in Danny Yatom's view, this kind of explosion was made more likely. Uh, Danny Yatom is essentially right. And uh, some of what he's saying are not just a matter of Machiavellian assumptions. Netanyahu did appear on Israeli TV a number of times and did explain his strategy. And in, in, in a very open way, he said the following. He said that Hamas is our ally, is our ally because our real fight is with the Palestinian Authority. So he admitted he even presented that strategy as his, namely keeping the Hamas in place, allowing them to be there, allowing a policy in which they were even sustained through foreign money, Qatari money and other. And he conducted, Netanyahu conducted most of his efforts on reducing uh, the Palestinian Authority clout and authority. Now, why did he do that? If only he did it, because that was his considered opinion in terms of strategy, then it might have been pardonable. But that is not the cause. The cause was more political in terms of Netanyahu's political interest, because Netanyahu relied on his coalition partners, who were the extreme right on the Israeli scale, who wanted to absorb the Boas Bank rather than come to an agreement in which Israel's partition between between a Palestinian state and a Jewish state. And Netanyahu therefore adopted this strategy of embracing the Hamas to sustain what in effect was his own political survivability by having as his allies those who thought that uh, there should be no two-state. So in other words, Netanyahu's strategy was not only flawed in real politic terms, but it was a self-serving strategy. And that is, that is, had that been costless, then maybe, but it cost us actually what we are seeing now. And therefore his responsibility would be taken, would be shown, and all the evidence is there that he relied on a self-serving political strategy, which in fact tolerated the Hamas rather than fighting it out the way it should have been all along because of its own character as an uncompromising uh, extremist, fundamentalist Palestinian terrorist organization. That, that's an absolutely damning judgment on a man, let's not forget, that you used to work for. You used to be Netanyahu's national security advisor. Yeah. What, what chance is there once the dust settles to actually get an agreement that ends this? Or is the two-state two state solution dead, finished, buried? No, no, the opposite should be. I think if we emerge out of this crisis 
with a kind of return to normalcy, and then we have to draw all the lessons, it is clear that we have to revise our policies. And the policy that should be promoted is the one that the Israeli majority favors, not this government, but the Israeli majority of the people, which is the one which goes for uh, a two-state solution. And that option is not dead. In fact, it is in Israel's interest to seeking uh, a negotiated conclusion of the Jewish-Arab-Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This should be done through a negotiating process. We should have at the both ends of these uh, process responsible leaders, Palestinian leaders who respect their national rights and seek to promote them, but at the same time act responsibly and seek accommodation. That's not Hamas. We should, and I think it is in our national interest, to return to the same formula that has been, in fact, the one that served all previous efforts of resolving this conflict from almost 100 years ago, since the Peel Commission and the UN Commission, in which the formula was one of partition. And partition implies a two-state solution. And we should do that either in phases or in gradual form, but that is what we ought to do. Uh, but for this, we have to have a change of policy, and for this, we have a change of government, and not a government of the kind that we have now, which consists only of right-wing and extreme right-wing. We should have a national unity, in fact, a bipartisan government, which has a more pragmatic approach, and the pragmatic approach would take you to this process of the two-state solution. Uh, there may be variations on it, but that should remain the essential uh, formula. There is no other one which is sustainable. Thanks, Paul and Uzi. Next. This week, we saw party conference season come to a close with the Labour conference in Liverpool. As always, when it's conference season, the best events were happening on the fringes. Katie Balls, our political editor, spoke to London Mayor Sadiq Khan in a spectator event on Sunday. Katie and Sadiq have kindly allowed us to hear a section of their discussion in which they cover anti-Semitism, ULEZ and the upcoming mayor election. And what a time to have uh, Sadiq Khan with us. Um, if we think about you know, the past few months in terms of politics more generally, whether it is ULEZ, whether it is what's happening in terms of a Labour government, speaking to the most senior elected Labour politicians seemed like a good place to start. And we did also, which is one of the reasons we asked Sadiq, is we did try and do this once before. Do you remember? I do. Do people know the story? Great story, if you're me. You may want to explain, Katie. Yeah, we tried to get Sadiq Khan to speak at an event at Tory party conference. You said yes. We said yes. But then the Conservative Party said no, and they wouldn't give you a pass. There, there's the irony. <laughs> the, 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 the Tories cancel culture. Eh? They can, the, the Tories cancel me. Um, no, uh, the other thing, and we are going to do some serious questions shortly, is I don't know if you want everyone to know, but it seems like it is a special day to also do this Fringe event because I hear it's your birthday. Anything from Keir Starmer yet? Any gifts? I think the best gift Keir could give me was Arsenal losing today to Man City. <laughs> and of course, us winning the next general election. Now, of course... To turn to Labour Party conference, I think this year has been a little bit confusing, particularly for journalists, because we've had Tory party conference first, and therefore quite a few almost questions thrown up at Tory party conference, which are now being talked about here in Liverpool. And I wanted to ask you about a serious thing first that happened at Tory party conference, because if you look at the various headlines, and I'm sure we'll get to some of them, you had the Tory mayoral candidate, Susan Hall, make comments where she suggested that Jewish communities are frightened by your divisive attitude. Now, it's been uh, criticised as dog whistle politics, but I just wondered, you know, how did it make you feel? Well, look, I, I think particularly in the context of the last 24 hours, I think the idea of weaponising Jewish people is wrong. And my fear is we may be seeing from the Conservatives a rerun of the 2016 mayoral contest and let me be quite clear there are jewish people in london londoners who have genuine concerns and anxieties and aspirations and we should be addressing them not using them as a pawn 
to try and win votes. And I think the Conservatives should recognise that in London, at least, I, I can't speak at this stage for the rest of the country, but if they have a campaign again based upon fear and division, I can promise them hope will overcome fear and unity over division and we're going to win. Let me be quite clear and unambiguous about this. You know, Hamas is a prescribed organization and what they've done in the last 24 hours in Israel causing the death and injury of hundreds is unacceptable. And uh, it's got to be condemned. Uh, and I do condemn that. We've also got to recognize the history of disturbances in the Middle East. It often spills over into an increase in hate crime in our city. So I've been in regular contact with the police over the last 24 hours and communities in London who are feeling scared and vulnerable and frightened. And uh, there are increased officers present across London to reassure communities. As Sabbat ended, you know, many Jewish people left their homes. There was concern about, about what we've seen in yesteryear. Thankfully, we're not seeing that over the course of the last 24 hours. We've got, we've got to be vigilant and never complacent. Uh, we are working closely with the government. And then I suppose just, just one more thing on that, which is, you know, when you see, I suppose, some of the pictures last night or the video footage of, you know, waving flags in support of, it seems, Hamas, is that something you condemn Londoners doing? It, waving the flag of Hamas is against the law. Hamas is prescribed. And, you know, the police are making sure that they enforce the law. There's obviously a distinction between, you know, the right to freedom to protest and so forth, but nobody likes to see people scared as a consequence of the actions of others. I mean, there was a case a couple of years ago where people live in, in and around Finchley Road were distressed and scared to leave their homes because of some of the actions taking place on Finchley Road. That can't be right in relation to Londoners feeling that way. And I make this point, it's really important, uh, whether it's the Middle East in, in the current context or other, other issues across the globe. You know, yes, of course, you, you know, make sure your views are heard, one of the joys of living with democracy, but we can't allow tensions and problems overseas to spill over in uh, London. One of the joys of our great cities, our diversity, uh, for me, is a strength, not a weakness. And so, you know, I think you've got to distinguish the murder, destruction and actions of a prescribed organisation and, you know, how people behave in uh, London, recognising uh, there are people who are scared in London. That can't be right. There are people who, because their place of worship is uh, a synagogue, they need security outside it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Because the school their child goes to is a Jewish faith school, they require security during term time. Because people walk down the streets of London and they're orthodox Jewish people, uh, they could be targets for this hate crime. And what we can't afford to happen, and we must not allow it to happen, is there to be an increase in hate crime in London because of what's happened in the Middle East. Now, I think just moving on, I suppose, to one of the other things that came up at conference, because one was, of course, transport, HS2. And you've been critical when it comes to uh, the government's supposed plan to get it to ultimately go to Euston. There's obviously a bit of an if there because they have to find private investment. But I wondered, because uh, you have commented on that, what you thought about Keir Starmer's position. Because ultimately the Labour government is saying that they won't repeat or they can't commit to the second leg if in government. And then you have Andy Burnham, for example, calling for, you know, why not protect the land? acquired uh, for HS2 between Manchester and Birmingham, so it could potentially be brought back at a later yeah. stage. Do you, do you think that argument has merit, or where do you see things now on it? Well, there were lots of things said last week at the Conservative Party uh, conference. So can I just reassure... Well, I mean, we're going to run out of the hour. Can I just reassure spectator readers, there is no tax on meat coming to a town or city near you soon. Uh, you're not going to be banned from going to your local shop if you want to buy meat or anything else. And uh, seven bins are not coming to you anytime soon with a Labour mayor or a Labour a government. But one of the things that the Tories announced last week, which beggars belief, I mean, I, mean, I was one of the original high-speed two ministers. I had the pleasure of being on the floor of the House of Commons and announced high-speed two in 2009 when Andrew was in the House of Lords. And the thing about high-speed two is we've had now, I think, five Conservative Prime Ministers, and there's been a lot of uncertainty over the last few years, stop, start, stop, start, stop, start. And, you know, when Sudak was Chancellor, we got the green light for it to happen. And what I find astonishing 
is we're now in a situation where High Speed 2 has been cancelled. The link between Birmingham, Curzon Street and London, Old Oak Common, which is six miles to the west of the centre, is going to be slower than the current train Victorian line from Birmingham, New Street to Euston. Only the Tories could make high speed that's slower than Victorian line trains. And so what the government has said is because of the pushback from businesses in London is they will allow a station at Euston if the private sector can pay for the tunnelling from Old Oak Common to Euston, the regeneration of that part of Euston, the homes and businesses. And you've got to bear in mind, homes have been demolished, businesses destroyed, Euston is now blight. And so I can't see how it's going to happen, Katie. I mean, I've written a letter to the Prime Minister asking a number of questions and asking for reassurances. The point about Andy Burnham and friends of mine, the Metro Mayors are asking for, is you know some reassurance in relation to the future. And I think the problem that, that, that you know uh, the communities in the North have is the, the premise of Northern Powerhouse, uh, High Speed 3, is contingent upon some of High Speed 2 happening. And so, you know, that, that's one of the reasons why, you know, the Metro Mayors, and me included, uh, you know, want to make sure we have investment in high speed too. But what Rachel and, you know, Keir clearly can't do, bearing in mind how the Tories have allowed costs to escalate, they, aren't, they haven't got a grip on the costs, is for Rachel and Keir to write a blank cheque for what happens in 14 months' time or 16 months' time or 206 days' time if we win the next general election. And so that's that's where where the, where the issue is. But I, I fully support the need for a high speed too. I fully support the need for investment in the North, East Midlands, uh, West Midlands, and indeed uh, London. But you will not get there with the sort of budgets that Liz Truss had, with the sort of economic mismanagement and the uncertainty. And when you speak to businesses, I know you do all the time, what businesses crave is certainty. And we've had the opposite from this government. I think from covering politics largely in Westminster, if I think to the past couple of months, it has at times looked as though it might be a little bit lonely to be Sadiq Khan politically. No, look, with friends like this, well, I'm never love to be lonely. Look, look I think, I think what, what, one of the things, look, there's a number of things I've learned over the last you know, seven and a half years is, firstly, you've got to be yourself. You've got to be authentic. You, you've got to be yourself. Don't, don't try to be something that, that you're not. And I've always tried to be myself. But secondly, You've got to remind yourselves why why you why I chose to be a politician and, and, and to be a mayor. It's because, you know, there are certain values that I've got and certain things that I believe in. And speaking as a former lawyer, I believe, you know, evidence is really important. I, you know, my and my values plus evidence dictate that I've got to both you know tackle the climate emergency but also reduce air pollution. And you know, and I remember Katie, I was a member of parliament when, you know, we as a Labour government introduced the banning of smoking in enclosed public places. And, you know, my government, which I was really proud to serve in, got a bit scared when people were being angry about banning smoking in enclosed public places to the point where the, the Labour government gave MPs a free vote because they were worried about the backlash. Uh, and I then voted to ban smoking in enclosed public places, incredibly unpopular in some quarters. You wouldn't think now, of allowing smoking again to take place in enclosed public places. So look, when you're trying to bring about transformative change, sometimes there is a short-term price to pay. But I genuinely think, Londoners are with me, you know, I genuinely think when I see the benefits in central London, we saw a reduction by almost 50% of pollution in central London, a third fewer children being admitted regularly to hospital with air pollution illnesses. We expanded it to, by the way, and those when I first did it were very angry in central London, initially a small number. Expanded it to inner London, further reduction of 20% in air pollution, children going to 500 schools, then breathe in clean air. But if it's good enough for central London and inner London, why not outer London, where there is the largest number of air pollution-related illnesses and uh, deaths? And I'm incredibly proud that a month on, we have the not just the biggest clean air zone in the world, 9 million Londoners and are breathing cleaner air. On you, there's, uh, I mean, a few things. I suppose 
first off, you've obviously just outlined the reasons that you think is very important. But there was a moment after the Uxbridge by-election, which clearly, you know, lots of people saying this is an awful time to introduce you there's because there's an Uxbridge by-election. But of course, you couldn't quite predict when Nadine Doris was going to get very angry about peerage and therefore Boris Johnson also resign and end up with a by-election. But in the time that followed that, you quite quickly had, you know, negative briefings about you from your own side, from the Labour leadership, uh, loads around it. And I just wondered, did that take... Do you by surprise how you know it did get quite personal? No, no listen, look, but politics, polit- to me, being a politician is not to be a good administrator and a good bureaucrat, important though that is. To me, being a politician has been a change maker uh, and positive change in our great city. But Kate, if you, if you study the history of our great city, in the 1950s, we had something called the Great Smog, where you could see the poison, you could see the smog, and you couldn't walk more than a few metres. And it was actually a conservative government that took the brave decision to bring in the Clean Air Act and remove from our cities power stations, right? Not the most popular thing that they did. Go back another 100 years, open sewers. Having sewers was unpopular just to clear out slums and bring in sewers. We've discussed the smoking bans. Look, I appreciate it often can feel as if you're doing something and it doesn't make sense because it appears to be an issue that's counterintuitive. But actually, look, those poorest Londoners are given the most support. We've now expanded the scrappage uh, scheme. Half of the households in our city don't even own a car. So it's an issue of social justice to me. The poorest Londoners, least responsible, suffer the worst consequences of both air pollution and uh, climate change. And so, you know, we're going to make sure we continue to support Londoners, whether you're a small business, a, a family, a charity, over the course of the next few weeks and uh, months to make sure that, you know, we do right by our city. Now, when you look at, I suppose, how you test the success of your US policy, you said it's data driven. But if you, I suppose, there's, you know, there's, com- there's competing studies, but there was one study which suggested it was making less difference. And I think some of the studies that City Hall talks about, so saying it was closer to 3%, what they attributed to the drop. And I just wondered, are you kind of at the point where if there became data at a later point, because we can throw stats at each other and it showed it was not particularly effective, would that inform your decision of what you'll do with it? Well, firstly, I'm really happy to have a debate yeah. about, about experts and, and data. Uh, uh, really, genuinely, I'm really happy yeah. uh, to do so. so. So look, experts will always disagree. There's nothing wrong with them disagreeing. It's good that experts have you know the opposite of groupthink in relation to uh, efforts on a whole host of issues, whether free school mills works, whether council housing works, whether air pollution is bad. I'm quite clear from all the evidence I've seen, not just from the Environmental Research Group, Imperial College, King's College, Queen Mary's, and we could go on and on and on. I'm really confident in relation to the fact that air pollution is bad. It is a silent killer. It does lead to stunted lungs, adults with a whole host of health issues, asthma, cancer, dementia, and so forth. But also I'm quite confident that the evidence shows that our policies work but of course, there'll be others who disagree. That's one of the joys of a democracy. You can have that debate and that discussion. And then in the end, I as, a, I as the mayor have got to make the call in relation to, do I put my head in the sand and ignore the overwhelming evidence or follow the one minority evidence, you know, one out of 10 that may say something that's that's opposite. But, you know, I, I am evidence-driven in relation to my policies and stuff. I don't think in being dogmatic. And, you know, my pragmatism is one of the reasons, once I know I could afford it, why we massively expanded the scrappage scheme. Thank you, Katie and Sadiq. And finally, the former Labour MP and Spectator Associate Editor, Sean Simon, writes in this week's magazine about his experience losing his sight and confronting the idea of internalised ableism. He joins me now. Sean, in the magazine this week, you write an extremely, I think, moving and, and uh, thought-provoking piece about your experience of going blind. And this piece is actually a a follow-up piece to one you wrote 21 years ago, where you sort of announced to the world that that you were going blind. And I wondered if you could start by telling our listeners about when you first noticed that your eyesight was starting to deteriorate and why you wanted to write about it in the first place. Yes. Hi, Will. Thanks for having me. So I've got got an X-linked, meaning female chromosome inherited condition called choroideremia in which your eyesight kind of shrinks and the world darkens very slowly over the years so because it's genetic my family knew that there was a 
a, a good chance that I would have this. So I was tested. I was standing out. I think I was tested when I was 11 and found that to have this condition. Although my mum didn't tell me till I was 17, which is a whole controversial thing in itself, which wouldn't be the way I would recommend people do it with their children. But uh, she thought it was a good idea. Um, in fact, weirdly, it was the... It was the day before I went to Oxford for my interview, my university interview. Uh, and she told me the night before, I think, about this whole eye thing, because she had it in her head that it was, it was going to be very dark in Oxford. So I needed to know. Why why, why dark in Oxford? They're not very, uh, they're not very <laughs> well lit. And I, I did actually find myself stumbling around, but at least I knew why. <laughs> so yeah, around that age, you start to get, I mean, it varies a lot person to person. Around that age, I started to get symptoms. And then it just gradually deteriorates over the years. So by the time I wrote that piece 20 years ago, I was 33. And I reckon I was maybe half blind then, such that I would do, would seem to behave odd enough that people could tell that there was something not quite right with me, but couldn't really work out what it was necessarily. I became a Labour MP the year before, and I didn't want to have hundreds of awkward conversations with people, kind of explaining it to them or take out a classified advert. So I, I wrote a piece in The Spectator just explaining what it was and talking then, I think, about partly about how awkward it was, how how just very in a very British way, I just found the whole thing very embarrassing and just embarrassing to talk about. And also how scary it was. Not so much the the awkwardness of the, the difficulty of seeing less, but the fear of seeing even less in the future. And so that that was then twenty years ago. And then now twenty years on, I finally this year, this summer, went and had the after like a year's wait, the medical examination that you have to have in order to register as blind, which I which I now am. Yes, well, well you say you say in the piece you describe this moment this year when you're registered as, as blind. You call it a great moment of validation, which perhaps some listeners might be surprised to hear it described in those terms. So I wonder if you could explain why it felt like that. Yeah, well, it's not supposed to feel like that. That's one of the reasons I wanted to write about it, because that that's definitely been my experience. My, my experience losing my sight gradually has been that I always felt not quite blind enough. I've always felt like I was kind of a bit of a blind imposter, whereas this summer finally... I went to see the ophthalmologist who examined me uh, and said, yes, you are you are severely sight impaired. You are a registered blind. Here is your certificate. Go out into the world with that in your pocket. And and I definitely felt better for it. Whereas the, the social model of disability, which is the kind of the underpinning modern model, says very much the opposite. It says you should need validation. You know, if you if you feel that you are disabled, then then you are. And I have a lot of sympathy for that. I'm not. I'm not at all arguing against that. Or I think all I'm saying is I think I think it's more complicated than that. I think, as always with ideology, these things become ideological, and then that becomes the single answer yeah. and the the single thing that, that that we ought to be feeling. Whereas there are lots of reasons why somebody might feel kind of n- not blind enough. It, in, imposter syndrome is. I've gone off into a bit of a rambly tangent here. No, no, I'm enjoying... Well, I think that there's there's a good concept that you mention in your piece, which is this concept which perhaps uh, some listeners might have heard it before, but others won't have, which is the idea of internalised ableism, which I think is, is, is what you're getting at here with this idea of uh, a particular ideology when it comes to questions of disability or blindness. So I wonder perhaps if you could explain, for those who aren't aware... Uh, what is this idea of internalized ableism? And uh, have you been uh, accused, perhaps, or made to feel guilty for supposedly having uh, internalized ableism? Internalized ableism, again, I'm sure it is a real thing. I'm not, I'm not at all arguing against it. It's the notion that disabled people come to assume the dominant societal norms in which disability is seen as something shameful and disabled people seen as imposters. I'm sure that that's, that's true and real and that, that must inform partly the way that I feel. I'm not at all arguing against that. I just don't think it's the only thing. I think there are other things. For instance, there's this question of that feeling that everybody gets when you trip and fall and hurt yourself, that you you feel in, the, in that moment anger and shame. It is, a, it is everybody feels ashamed at that moment. 
there's nothing to be ashamed of. There's no reason you should feel ashamed when you fall over and hurt your knee. But in that moment when you drag yourself up, that is what people feel. And my whole life is like that all the time. And that shame, I'm sure, is part of the shame that I feel too. It's a hardwired shame. It's uh, it's just some kind of evolutionary shame. And I, I'm not saying that that's all of it. I'm just saying that that's, uh, that's a part of it. Uh, and uh, this may be... Uh, please don't answer this if this is too personal a question. But obviously, uh, the experience of going blind uh, with all the challenges that it faces is a huge physical change. Do you think that that experience over the last few decades, has that also changed, do you think, the way you think? Does it change your personality, the way you think about the world? Uh, I just wonder how has it, how is, how is, how is it affected your personality as well as uh, your sort of physical day-to-day life? I think it's a, it's a really good question, and it's one that I've thought about but it's it's very difficult to answer because it coincides with on the one hand getting old you you won't know this but a lot a lot of the the symptoms of getting old align quite nicely with some of the other kind of developments i suppose in my personality so i feel like yeah i feel like my world has got a lot smaller i feel probably less outgoing more slightly more misanthropic than i used to be Maybe I'm a more of a grumpy curmudgeon. I mean, to be honest, I I feel all that anyway. So, <laughs> and I'm and I. <laughs> well, you feel it now. You wait till you're in your mid fifties and see yeah. how grumpy you are. Yeah. So yeah. So I don't know if I'm grumpier because I can't see anymore, or if I'm grumpy because I'm old, old, older, mm. um, or or indeed because of everything else that's happened. You know, all my other experiences. It's very difficult to pin it down, but they're certainly aligned. Yes. Well, just finally, Sean, of course, you mentioned in the piece, uh, and many listeners will already know, that you uh, were a Labour MP uh, in the Commons for for a number of years. And I wondered, in terms of your blindness, or or at least at the time when you were going blind, what it was like being an MP at the same time. I mean, uh, we know that Parliament's (laughs) desperately need of a refurnishment and going through a very expensive one. And and, and there are other MPs with disabilities who have spoken before about the difficulty of the role they have when it comes to getting on with the job. Is that something you found in your time as an MP, that that Parliament's quite difficult for people who have uh, certain disabilities? Yeah, it was a terrible place visually. It it could almost have been kind of purpose-built in order to be as difficult and unpleasant for a then partially sighted person to try and get around. And even the the bits that they built most recently were the worst bits. There were... It wasn't just because it was a, an old a Victorian building. It was something cultural in the people who made it. Thank you, Sean. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore, and I hope you'll join me again next week.